This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. It's Jeremy Myers with the One Verse Podcast. Last time you read the Sermon on the Mount, did you struggle with how to understand it and apply it to your life? Maybe you were racked with guilt and fear over some of the things Jesus said in that sermon. If that's the case, you've been reading the Sermon on the Mount wrong. Jesus did not intend to put you on a guilt trip or make you fear that maybe if you didn't do everything he said in the sermon, you would be ended, you would end up in hell. In this podcast episode, we are going to, I'm going to, interview Kent Young, who wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called, Theirs is the Kingdom. And at the end of the podcast interview, by the way, I'm going to share with you how you can download a free copy of this commentary. So make sure you listen all the way to the end. But as Kent and I discuss the Sermon on the Mount, he presents us with sort of a framework, a paradigm, a central idea to help us understand what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and what he was not teaching. And when you understand this, you will not only be able to understand the Sermon on the Mount, but really almost the entire Bible. There's sort of a paradigm shift that's going to happen in your mind just to help you understand some of the difficult and tricky texts in the Bible. And these, this paradigm shift will help you make sense of a lot of these texts. And then after that, we discuss three tricky texts out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the One Verse Podcast after all, so we look at one verse three or four times. <laughs> we look at about four different verses. So anyway, one of them is Matthew 5.22. The New King James Version says, but whoever says you fool shall be in the danger of hell fire. Now Kent uses a different translation, which makes a lot more sense. We talk about that. And then we discuss Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Jesus goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? It's better that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, that's the New King James Version. Kent gives his own translation, which again is much, much better, truer to what Jesus was actually teaching to help us understand what those passages mean. And then we close out today's interview with looking at Matthew 7:13 about entering through the narrow gate. What is that? What does it mean? And how can you do it? So we'll, we talk about all of these uh, in this discussion of the Sermon on the Mount. So anyway, I don't want to waste any more of your time. This is actually a long interview, so I just want to jump right in and get to it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Kent Young, author of Theirs is the Kingdom, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Here you go. Okay, I'm here with Kent Young. He and I met online. In fact, I was interviewed by him and Anthony and some of uh, the people of the Think Outside Politics podcast, which I highly recommend you go subscribe to on iTunes if you haven't already. But I discovered in uh, talking with Kent that he has written a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which is titled, Theirs is the Kingdom. And I was looking through it, and it happens to be one of the best commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount that I have ever read. So I decided to sit down with Kent and talk about this commentary. Kent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. 
So very, uh, very appreciative, kind words. I, <laughs> I'm not sure I agree. It's the best Summer on the Mount commentary, but uh, I might put it in the top five. There you go. I think I said one of the best, didn't I? Oh, one of the best. Okay, that, that's, that, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it then. Maybe I did say the best. One of the best. Anyway, it's definitely in the in the top five for sure. But so, Kent, just so others can get to know you, listeners, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, where you are, what you do, maybe even uh, some of how you wrote this commentary. Sure, sure. Yeah, I um, uh, live in Tallahassee, Florida. Like you, I don't uh, do this full-time. I got full-time work elsewhere, but um, in my spare time, one of my favorite things to do is study the Word, and um, I actually am a part of a, a home church here in, in Tallahassee, and we, uh, it's been several years ago now, um, went through the Sermon on the Mount as a study, kind of a group study, and I kind of led it. I kind of put together some outlines, but it was kind of a, a group fellowship study, which was really uh, encouraging and refreshing. And after it was over, I really kind of wanted to just get some of the thoughts that we had and what we really felt the Lord had revealed to us through that study into a book, uh, into, into some form that we could share with other people. I thought, you know, I already had the outlines put together, so it might take a couple months. And uh, several years later, I finally had the book finished, and uh, now it's, it's published up on Amazon.com. Um, but yeah, there was a couple things that, that uh, came up that slowed that process down. We had two kids between when I started it and when we finished yep. it. So That'll we had our third since then. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that slowed it down a little bit. Oh, but, for um, sure. Huh. Well, that's fantastic. I love it when studies like this come out of sort of that organic relationship with other believers in discussion. It's not just some guy writing these books in an ivory tower somewhere. Uh, but right. these are things you're working through and teaching and um, having conversations about with other believers on a weekly basis. And uh, I just I think that's one of the things that makes your commentary so uh, helpful and valuable and, uh, you know, able to apply it to our lives as well. So good. Thank you for writing it and uh, for the brief summary. Now, one of the things I do want to introduce to the listeners of the podcast that I sometimes find confusion about is this is the Sermon on the Mount itself. Lots of people aren't quite sure what to do with it. There's lots of tricky texts and passages and lots of demands even from Jesus sometimes about what you have to do and can't do and how you're supposed to behave and think and act and all sorts of things. And I think some people who aren't quite sure about whether or not they have eternal life, they get really confused and maybe even scared by some of the things they read from the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So uh, just before we dive into a few of the texts that I would like to discuss, I wonder if you can give us sort of your take, your perspective on uh, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, what it's for, who it's for, how we should read it, that sort of a thing. Sure, yeah. The um, I'd say the the first thing to, to notice about the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most important thing looking at it, is who Jesus' audience is, who, he, who he's talking to, and what the context is that Matthew puts it in. Like Matthew uh, um, was telling us the story of Jesus' life, and if you notice, Jesus had already gone out and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, John the Baptist had already gone out and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the, the sermon actually starts in, in Matthew chapter 5 with the disciples coming to him. It says, he saw the crowds, he withdrew up the mountain, the disciples came to him, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he, go, and he goes into the text of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's important to notice that, because I'd actually been presented when, um, when I was younger 
with the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is an evangelistic message. It was Jesus calling people to believe in him. And so all these demands that Jesus makes would then be requirements to have eternal life. Um, and when, like, like what you were saying, when, when that's the understanding, when that's the interpretation, it can get really frustrating because you only get a few pages, <laughs> a few uh, lines in, and you realize this standard of righteousness is well beyond. I mean, love your enemies. <laughs> like, does, <laughs> has anybody ever obeyed that command that throughout the, the course of their life? He says, okay, if the requirement for eternal life is you have to love the people who mistreat you, uh, you have to turn the other cheek when your street cheek's been struck. You have to um, not take no thought for tomorrow. Don't worry about your clothing or your food. It's like now I don't you like so that the problem is if taking it in that way, you either one have turmoil of soul saying, I don't think I don't know that I have eternal life. Can I possibly have any confidence in my eternal life when this is the standard? Yeah. Or what sometimes people will do is. Well, he must be being hyperbolic because he can't really mean for us to love our enemies all the time. He can't really mean for us to not worry about our stuff. So then they'll they'll soften the standard that Jesus is saying. And I, I don't think either of those are the right way to go. What Jesus is doing, he's talking to his disciples. Like I said, he had already proclaimed to the crowds, like John the Baptist had, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Then he, when he talks to the disciples, and that's why I titled the book like I did, Theirs is the Kingdom, he's telling people— who have believed in him, who are already born again, what is required of them as his kingdom people? What is required of them to receive the reward of reigning with him in the day when the kingdom finally comes? And we can we can talk about the, what, what that means, the, the kingdom. Um, you know, let, let me just address that point really quickly. Yeah, no, please um, do. I was going to ask about that. Lots of confusion on the kingdom as well, what it is, how... To, how to experience it, how to get in, all those sorts of things. Yeah, and that was long as, and especially since your book is titled "Theirs Is the Kingdom." Tell us about your view on the kingdom and and how it relates to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, uh, the first chapter of my book is actually called "The Kingdom," and it's explaining that uh, that point. And the first thing that I want to point out about it is the way Jesus talks about it, similar to the way John the Baptist talks about it. They, they're not talking about it with their audience as though they're introducing an entirely new concept. The kingdom is at, is at hand, or the kingdom draws near, depending on the translation. Um, it seems like he's assuming the audience already understands that there is a kingdom, hmm. that the, he, he's referencing something that the, that the Jews of his day would have been familiar with. Um, and there's a number of Old Testament prophecies that talk about the day that the Messiah is going to come. And the Jews had the, uh, a lot of expectations of what that would look like, the throwing off of the Romans, for instance, the, um, uh, you know, the lion lying down with, or the wolf lying down with the lamb. That's a often misquoted uh, passage out of Isaiah. Um, but the, the nations beating their swords into plowshares and the word of God coming out from Jerusalem and all the nations gathering around and there being blessing over the whole earth. And they're like, oh, the Messiah is here. That must mean that kingdom is, is at hand, hmm. um, meaning Jesus is going to, He's saying he's the Messiah. He's going to kick out the Romans, and the Jews are going to rule the world. Well, sort of. <laughs> and so Jesus, when he starts off talking, he doesn't clarify, no, you guys are getting it all wrong. He doesn't start that way. He starts with their understanding of the kingdom and then begins to instruct the more specifics about it. Once the disciples have come to him as believers, he's like, you want to know the kind of people who inherit the kingdom? The poor in their spirit. The meek, 
the those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, the uh, yes, the kingdom is at hand. I'm the king and I'm here, but you, specifically the Jews as a nation, you're not in the spiritual condition to be to be kingdom people. And so the ones who believed in him, he's saying, in order to inherit this kingdom, in order to reign with me in uh, in this um, kingdom that that's been prophesied for by the Jews for all these centuries, you have to meet these certain requirements. This is the kind of character you need to have. Um, and so he's not teaching them. He, it doesn't contradict what he says to Nicodemus in John three, for example. Uh, you must be born again. Whoever believes um, has eternal life. Um, that is the first requirement. Like you can't. Like he says to to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. Um, so that is the first requirement. You have to be born again. But there's this additional righteousness that he's wanting to instill in his disciples in order for them to receive the reward of reigning with him in the kingdom. And so foundationally, that's the understanding I take. Yes, it's a literal kingdom the same way that the Jews were expecting it in a sense. There is a national is uh, nation of Israel element to it. He will physically reign in Jerusalem at his second coming, I believe. Um, and that's when these rewards are meted out um, for you know, getting to, to, to reign with him in the kingdom. Um, but there is that um, other element that, um, you know, when people use the term kingdom today, uh, you know, or when, Christian, when Christian people talk about the kingdom, a lot of times it's in a very kind of vague, ethereal way. It wouldn't have been the same way the Jews would have understood it at the time. Like uh, there's a, a phrase that's common uh, among, you know, my peers, like he's a kingdom-minded person. Mm, yeah, and what they mean that. is he cares about Christianity generally. He's not just worried about his own local ministry or something like that. And that's that, that's fine, you know, you know, terms kind of evolve in their meaning. Um, but there is a spiritual kingdom idea that Jesus does introduce that is that somewhat flipped the Jewish idea of their day of what the kingdom was. Um, and a comparison I often make is with when Jesus is talking to Martha at Lazarus's tomb. If you remember the story, Martha had a, had, had a doctrinal understanding. She had heard Jesus even teach, there will be a day of resurrection. And so when Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again, what's her response? I know, I know. That's comforting. He'll rise again at the last day. Right. He says, no, I am the resurrection mm. and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. Um, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so it's like, so Jesus, are you saying there's not a day of resurrection? Like, no, Jesus taught there is a day of resurrection. The same principle with the kingdom. Are you saying there's not this national kingdom that the Jews have been waiting for all these years? No, there is one. But you're focused on the wrong thing when you're worried about the time. The important element about the kingdom, just like the important element about resurrection, is who is the king? Hmm. Like, whose voice raises the dead? Like, Martha, when you're worried about the day, that's not the important point. I'm here. I am the resurrection. And through my voice, Lazarus can walk out of that grave. And the same thing's true with the kingdom. Look, disciples, you want to sit on my right hand and my left hand in the kingdom. You want to have the most power, the most glory. You're looking at it all wrong. You want to look like me. The kingdom is like me. <laughs> the um, like the uh, what's that psalm or the, the the scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. He's like the 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 nation of Israel wants this this political aspect of the kingdom, but they don't want the spiritual aspect of the kingdom that that has been preached right alongside the political aspect. 
And so today, believers, in this day prior to the actual national kingdom of Israel, there's an element of the kingdom that we experience simply by our by virtue of looking like Jesus, submitting to Jesus' ministry to us by the Holy Spirit. You know, he's here yeah. in one sense. You know, we're waiting for him to come, and so we're waiting for the establishment of the kingdom physically and bodily and nationally for the Jews— but spiritually, he's already here. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so in that respect, the kingdom also is with us to the end of the age. Um, and so you can kind of see both of those elements throughout the Sermon on the Mount as he's he's teaching what it means to um, enter the kingdom, to uh, receive the kingdom, to, to to be a kingdom person. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get confused because a, a couple times here and there it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven. And so people mm-hmm. see that word heaven, and they think, oh, kingdom of heaven, this means going to heaven or something. And right. if I hear you correctly, you're saying that's not the same thing at all. This is not necessarily about going to heaven when you die no. or receiving eternal life. This is I, about living like Jesus now and then in eternity as well, especially once he, he comes again. Yes, and that's a, that's a point I make in that first chapter, yeah. that, that it's—I'm not sure how, but through history today— we read the Bible and we're more concerned with the question of where do I go when I die? Right. There, we think about that more than the, the Jews of the day. It's not that Jesus didn't address that. He did. Um, but the question was the Pharisees and the Sadducees were debating, is there a resurrection? Mm. And Jesus is, and ironically on this side, on the Pharisee's side, yes, there is a resurrection. I'm the one who will raise the dead. Mm-hmm. And what happens at that point? Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> the way one person described it was uh, – um, heaven is not your home. You're just a passing through, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. because you're up there, but you're, you're being resurrected. You're going to be resurrected and you're going to come back to the physical realm of existence. Um, and so, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is a referencing of the heavens governing the earth. Right. You know, it's, yep. he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning God. And I mean, the kingdom of God, he uses that for expression too. Um, it's that the heavens are now are are, are going to be ruling the earth. It's actually the earth that's the that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why as as it is in heaven, so also on the earth. Mm. Um, and so it's not theirs is the kingdom of heaven, meaning when they die they get to go to heaven. It's when the heavens rule the earth in its fullness and its full manifestation, they get to rule there too. Yeah. So just to get real concrete, practical here, if uh, let's say there's a, a person who shows up at your house church, the the group you have in your home. And uh, it quickly becomes obvious that they are not a believer, but they're interested in learning more. Are you are you going to take them? I've heard this happen to Matthew chapter five, for example, and tell them, "Hey, look, if you want to become a Christian, you need to become poor in spirit. You need to become meek. You need to uh, be filled, be merciful, uh, be pure in heart, become a peacemaker, and you probably even need to experience some persecution because right there it says in verse ten, "For theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Is that what you're going to do? And this is a, this hypothetical person is an unbeliever. Yes, I think the first thing you want to do is help them become a believer. There you go. <laughs> you yes. Know? Yep. The good example of what it of how you're you're to interact with a person who's genuinely open and seeking but is not yet a believer, I think we find in that interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Yep. It's like, look, G- Nicodemus is paying him these compliments. Look, I know you're a teacher come from God. Look at all the signs you're doing. Jesus, let no stop, stop, Nick. You need to be born again. Right. <laughs> you know, as the serpent's lifted up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man. That whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Like, I, yeah, that's where you start with the unbeliever. Absolutely. Um, the, and then the teaching that Jesus that, is giving is the instruction to those who believe, Absolutely. who want to who, to go on with him. Perfect. 
I love it. Okay, so with that in mind, I know hopefully the people um, have heard, they've heard me say or say similar things in previous episodes. I think that should make sense to a lot of the listeners. Um, and but if not, then you can reach out to Kent Young, various places. We'll get to that at the end of the uh, end of the sure. podcast as we talk about that. But I do want to talk. Oh, this is the one verse podcast, and I think we're going to try to talk about three verses. It's going to be quite a bit, so <laughs> we're going to do our best here to get through it. But I, well, I, I know how much Jeremy Myers can go go into on one verse, so uh, I'm I'm ready for <laughs> oh, it. Oh, but you, you so you three are, verses will be what about a three hour podcast? No, listen, you're the same way. I was looking to your 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 commentary here, and we're going to talk first about Matthew five twenty two C. And this is one, two, three, four, five typewritten pages on <laughs> one third of a verse. So I think uh, just 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 C, not A and B. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to start there, Matthew five twenty two C. And the reason I chose this verse is there's been a lot of discussion. Maybe it's just in my circles recently about hell, what it is, yeah. what it is not. And lots and lots and lots of people point to this verse, Matthew 5, 22c, and then they also turn to which we're also going to talk about um, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. So so we'll take these one at a time, and then if we have time, we're going to get to Matthew 7, 13. But uh, Matthew 5, 22. Now, by the way, what Bible translation did you use here? Is this your own, or which which one is this? That was the Kent Young translation. Yep, that's what I thought. Okay, but it's a good one. <laughs> not, not to be confused with the Young's literal translation, which is another <laughs> translation. Okay, so that's, that's yeah, that was my own uh, my own translation. A friend of mine said, "You uh, you know your book is in the nerdy category when you uh, when you have to just use your own translation because nobody else is saying it the way you, <laughs> you think it's supposed to be said." Well, I like that though because I'm going to read out of the New King James first, uh, Matthew mm-hmm. five twenty two C, and here's what it says. Uh, let's see. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. I guess that was B and C. But uh, yeah. uh, your translation, which I like a whole lot more, says, and whoever says, Mora, we'll talk about that, will be liable to the fiery Gehenna. I am so thrilled that you just left that Greek word there as Gehenna instead of hellfire, like so many other Bible translations do. Mm-hmm. So I do want to talk about Mora and, and sort of why you translated it that way, what that means um, practically and culturally. But let's start with this idea of Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Why did you just leave this as fiery Gehenna? And is this referring to uh, Jesus referring here to some sort of everlasting torture chamber for unbelievers in hell? Short answer, no, that's not what he's referring to. Um, there is, he does use the word fire. Yes. And so a lot of people have equated then in John, in uh, the Revelation uh, chapter 20, the, the lake of fire. Um, and so they'll read Gehenna, fiery Gehenna. And there's other verses, you know, where the worm dieth not. Say, so, okay, so that must mean it's eternal if the worm's not dying there. And he says fire. So we've got eternal fire and we have a nice lake of fire that's, that's, uh, 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 ages unto ages and uh, revelation so that so you can see the logic of connecting sure, the two. Sure. Um, but I don't, I don't agree with the, with connecting the two for a couple of reasons. Number one, the old Testament references Gehenna. Um, in Jeremiah, there's a, a couple passages in Jeremiah, Jeremiah seven and Jeremiah 19. It talks about the Valley of the son of Hinnom, which Gehenna just means the Valley of Hinna, which though like all, virtually every Bible scholar, I haven't found one who disagrees thinks those are those are referencing the same thing and yep. Jeremiah describes it as a specific place on the earth that's south of Jerusalem um 
And more importantly, he references it as a place where and there's an eschatological judgment, but it's it's in time. It's not an eternal punishment. He's saying the uh, there's one part where he says that it will be it will cease to be called the Valley of Hinnom and will be called the Valley of Slaughter because your enemies, to talking to the Jews, will be slaying you there. Um, and so when Jesus says you're you're gonna you're guilty of the fiery Gehenna, he's referencing, I believe, those passages in Jeremiah that are talking about judgment that's going to come upon the nation of Israel, um, and that. You, as my disciples, um, are guilty, not that you're going to lose your position of being eternally secure, but in this eschatological judgment, when I'm about to establish the kingdom, you're, you're going to be like the Jews who, are, who were rebellious and were being warned by Jeremiah that this judgment was going to come upon them. A fierce judgment is going to come upon you. And he used a similar, um, similar language when he says the, the, the one servant who beats and abuses his fellow servants will be cut asunder. You know. Whether that's literal or not, it's the similar thing where he says, tear him to peace and throw him into Gehenna. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm sorry, they'll be called the, the Valley of Slaughter, and then they're cut asunder. I think there's a link there. And then the fiery element, I mean, there, there's fiery language every time Jeremiah references Gehenna. Um, he especially says, this is the place where you guys were offering your children in burnt sacrifices to pagan gods, um, which I didn't command you to do, nor did it ever enter into my mind. <laughs> that that reminded me a lot of your commentary on some of the Old Testament passages. Like, you guys think God is wanting you to do this. That is so far removed from what I want you to do. That wouldn't even enter my mind. Burn your kids in an offering. Um, but he says that that fiery Gehenna will, Jeremiah says, that's going to be a place of eschatological judgment. And Jesus says, when you so abuse your fellow believers, there's a judgment coming upon you. It, I don't think it's eternal fire. I don't think it's loss of salvation, um, but it is an eschatological uh, judgment that Jesus will bring to his disciples. Whenever I read this verse, I think of when I was in junior high, my best friend, for whatever reason, he used to call everybody a fool. It was just sort of his thing. You know, people would mess with him or something. He'd say, you fool! Anyway, so one Sunday morning, <laughs> we're sitting in Sunday school at the church I attended, and the Sunday school teacher was up there, and he was teaching uh, on this verse. <laughs> and he read it, you know, from the NIV or some Bible translation. And, you know, whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. And everybody looked at my friend Jason. And he said, <laughs> oh! After that, I never heard him call anybody, say, you fool, to anybody. Uh, because, I mean, the, the, the teacher in that class basically went on to say, you need to be careful. You don't call anybody, you know, names or say anything negative about your, your fellow Christians, because if you do, it's possible you'll end up in hell. But you can see how with some of these poor translations, people do get that idea, right? Yeah. It, it, I, a very similar experience I had with your, uh, your friend. Um, I heard some adult call another adult a fool. And I'm a little kid, you know, you just monkey see, monkey do. Um, I called my brother or my sister a fool in front of my mom, and she just was taken aback. Like, look, you can curse or swear or whatever you want, but don't say fool. Look at this Bible verse, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it's okay. funny, talking about your podcast, Think Outside Politics, just you look at the, the current political spectrum going on right now. We've got everybody calling everybody else fools. Uh, and oh, and, yeah. and of, lots of worse of names, too. <laughs> And so, yeah. so if Jesus, if that's really what Jesus meant here, basically everybody's going to hell, right? Uh, but you just did a good job explaining what Gehenna was. It's this sort of trash heap area where they did child sacrifices outside, south of Jerusalem. 
And Jesus is talking here about this future judgment that's going to come upon the nation of Israel. Did I understand you right? Where their enemies are going to kill them? Yes, I think that that, that's what Jeremiah meant. And I think Jesus took that and then warned his disciples about the same judgment. Okay, Mm -hmm. so how can it... Now, I do want to talk about this word mora, which in the New King James here is raka. Let's talk about that first, and then we'll figure out how, how the two ideas fit together here and what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So talk about this word mora or raka. Um, so just a, a real quick point of clarification. There are two different words, raka and then fool. Oh, yes. Um, yep. I keep I keep raka, and right, right, uh, right. most translations say fool. And For mora. Raka is the... Um, um, Aramaic or Syriac uh, word meaning empty-headed, worthless person. And some translations will go with, will, will, will translate it. It's similar to when Jesus is on the cross and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and then he translates it for you, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, here he doesn't give the translation. He just says the, the, what Jesus actually said in, his, in the, 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 his normal speaking. He probably wasn't speaking Greek. Um, so he said, if you say raka, which means empty-headed, worthless um, you're liable before the Sanhedrin. Then the other one is the one that most translations translate fool, which is a fair translation of the word mora in Greek, but there's also a Syriac word mora, which means um, rebel. Hmm. And I take it to mean to, that Jesus is using the Aramaic or Syriac uh, word mora the same way he was using it for raka. I think it makes a lot more sense in the context. There's a few translations that have that that have said uh, the Young's literal, ironically, which no relation to to me, Young. Um, it it says he who says thou rebel to his brother, um, hmm. and so it, it takes the, the 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 same way because fool and worthless one are kind of similar, and it, and the yet the penalty gets much higher on the second one, um, where rebel, which if so. In both cases, they're talking. They're they're uh, one believer talking to his brother, um, and just as an aside, one of the most profound revelations we had going through the Sermon on the Mount is how important to Jesus is the interaction of believers with each other, like the way you treat your your believers, the way you interact with them, the way you you even feel about them. You har- harbor this anger in your heart, or if you're a uh, um, har- harboring lust in your heart after somebody, it's like be restored to them, mm-hmm. you know, quick, you know, while you're with, it's like be restored with your accuser while you're with them on the way to court. Um, because that's what Jesus takes the most seriously. The most serious warnings that he gives are the, you know, like the servant who beats and abuses his fellow servants. He's like, you don't raise your hand against the other believers. I mean, that's like, like Jesus talking to the apostle Paul, like why persecutest thou me? Like Jesus takes that personally when you when you uh, raise a, a hand or speak against your brothers, um, and that was just something that was really profound. And I think that's another example in this this passage. When you call a brother worthless, which is the first one, raka, it's a slander, because if someone's a, your brother, it means they're genuinely born again. Uh, God has genuinely brought them into His family, and they're of value to Him. You don't call somebody worthless. Hmm. Um, even worse is to call them a rebel. Like you, uh, there was two times in the Old Testament I bring up in my commentary um, where Moses used the term rebel. One was the sons of Korah, where he was vindicated because the earth swallowed up the Korites. Um, but then the other was at uh, Merida, where he's 
commanded by God, speak to the rock that it might bring forth water. Because the people were grumbling against Moses and saying, hey, why, are, why don't we have any water like they were prone to do? Uh, but God wasn't mad at them. He wanted to give them water. Moses was mad at them. And he says, here now, you rebels, shall we, <laughs> he says the first person plural, we, in, like meaning me and God, mm. bring forth water from this rock. And he strikes the rock in anger instead of speaking to it. And that alone, <laughs> I mean, uh, based just on what the passage says, it seems like that alone is why God says, you don't get to go into the promised land. Right. You don't call these children of mine who are just asking for water, and I delighted to give them a drink of water. You don't, in your own wrath, call them rebels and, and strike the rock where I told you just to speak to it. Hmm. Um, and similar, Jesus says, you say to your brother, you rebel. It's, I mean, it's one thing to say that somebody's worthless to God, but to say you're actually antagonistic to God. You are against God. You are, you are on the other team to your brother. You're guilty to go into the fiery Gehenna. He's like saying, there is a serious judgment waiting for you um, if, if, if that's the attitude you're showing towards these brethren of mine. Okay, so if a Christian does, I mean, is it literally, do we need to just call someone a rebel, or is it just sort of the attitude, do you think, behind our words and behaviors towards other Christians? I mean, what is, is Jesus saying something here to us about our behavior towards Christians, and if so, exactly what is that? Well, I mean, I, it's not a magic word. Right, <laughs> you know, okay. That if, you, that if you use the word rebel, you're, uh, you're, or Mora, you're in trouble. For example. Well, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> I mean, one thing that's clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that the Lord looks at the heart in you know, the same way he said to David or to Samuel talking about Saul versus David. Um, men judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Um, he's talking about your, 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 you're aware the ancients were told don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't do these external sins, which are sins. You don't do those things. But when you are harboring anger in your heart against your brother, you, you've started down that murderous path. Um, and when you are have the attitude where you're going to actually call your brother a fool, you've gone even further down that path. And when you've got this heart attitude where you call your brother a rebel, it's not yeah, it's not necessarily the uttering of the words, but it's the the, the feeling in your heart. And I, I mean, going through this study and then interacting with other believers in my own life, there was a number of times where I would be frustrated with the person, I'd be like, I just wish this brother wouldn't show up. He's frustrating. He's annoying me, you know, or, or something like something along those lines. And it's just hearing that the, the, the voice of Jesus, you know, by the spirit through the text of the scriptures, like, you mean that one for whom I died, <laughs> you know, are you saying I shouldn't have saved him? Well, <laughs> you wow. know, it's like, like the, once you see people the, through the, the eyes of Jesus, through what Jesus did for them and his, and, and his, um, how, how his attitude is toward them, like you, you've got to love them the same way he loves them, and and he, I mean, th- throughout the the the, um, the sermon, he talks and he and he does get into at the end of the sermon kind of how you're equipped to do these things. It's not just you grit your teeth and force yourself to love them. Yeah. You know, by his spirit, he he instructs you and, and helps you, and you grow in your love for one another by submitting yourself to him. But it's just kind of like that warning, like that that heart of anger and bitterness and hatred towards other believers. That is not from me. That is not my attitude. That's what the Lord is saying to us. And so if a person hearing this does have some bitterness and anger towards some other believers or other Christians or people at church or maybe even some, you know, family members, um, should they, 
obviously they should be concerned about something, but what exactly should they be concerned about? Jesus says they're liable, in your translation, liable to fiery Gehenna. We've already said this is not eternal hellfire, uh, eternal punishment, um, but what should they, what, what could potentially possibly happen to them? What, what, you know, if, if they don't change, if they don't repent from this? Well, there's obviously the first thing would be this life um, issues. Um, I think of the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, where the, the Apostle Paul's talking to the Corinthians about their handling of the Lord's Supper. And that, that's another verse that I think often is kind of mistranslated, misappropriated, because they, um, he says, you, you eat the Lord's Supper, you are not discerning the body. And our, our Roman Catholic friends say, meaning, no, oh, you don't recognize that's literally his body. Hmm. But most Christians kind of say, no, you have to be real sober and real, real sober-minded and think, well, this is a real serious time. Jesus suffered on the cross. But in the context there, what he was rebuking the Corinthians for was neglecting the others. Right. He says, one goes ahead, it doesn't wait for the other. The other's drinking so much wine, he's getting drunk. He's like, wait for one another when you come together and discern the body, meaning the corporate body, the collective body of Christ who's coming to gather to remember him. He says, this is why many of you are sick and some have died. Mm. It's like that, um, there's a, when that, that, the attitude was, disdain and and not having that attitude of love for each other. So there's there's temporal, this age, um, obviously just the cons- natural consequences, your relationships aren't going to be that good, um, but God even reserves the right for himself to have temporal punishment through uh, through premature death in the case of the Corinthians. Um, I don't necessarily want to get into too much. I mean, you can go to the book to see, that I, I believe there are eschat- eschatological things too, loss of reward for the, in the case of the um Millennial Kingdom. I I don't believe you can lose your eternal salvation. I still think you're you're going to be with the Lord forever if you believe in Him. But um, there's temporal um, millennial age judgment too that that can come. And I get into that more in the the, the last couple of chapters. Um, some okay. will agree with me on some of them. Some won't agree with me on others. But I do think there are some eschatological judgments too. But I mean, I don't think that's the 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 main point that Jesus is getting at. The main point he's getting at is love each other, you know, right. the, have the attitude that I have towards them. And, you know, that can only be done by first aligning yourself with the Lord, you know, get, get, if, if you hate your brother in your heart, get in your prayer closet because the Lord doesn't hate him. Yeah. The Lord wants what's best for him. Even if he's really sinning against you, you get in your prayer closet and you line your heart up with the Lord's and then you'll, you'll be able to love him because he is your brother. If, if he's, if he's genuinely born again, I mean, obviously you, you know, love unbelievers too. Um, but there's a, there's an, a special thing. Like there's one passage where, where Paul says, um, I think it's at the end of Galatians, do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. Um, and so that, that specific, I think that that's the specific attitude he's, he's, uh, he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So the main takeaway would be, um, have the same attitude that Christ has towards them. Um, and, and that's going to be one of love and care for them, even if they are in a position where they're, they're mistreating you or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Good. Thank you. Okay, yeah. let's move on. That was only one-third of a verse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think this next well, one, we, though— we did, in, in my defense, we did get into B, too, with the Raka element. So that's we did the B true. The you're C, right. So two-thirds uh, of a Two-thirds verse. of a verse. Okay, you're right. <laughs> uh, but I think this next one actually is going to go a little quicker because we covered all of the issues of Gehenna. And this mm-hmm. one is similar in concept because it mentions Gehenna as well. It's Matthew 5, 29 and 30, and uh, I'm reading this one out of the Kent Young translation as well. It says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out 
and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into Gehenna. So is Jesus really saying here, look, if you don't want to, let me just rephrase this. I've heard it preached. I've heard it taught. You know, if you have sin in your life, uh, something causes you to sin, you need to take drastic measures to get rid of that or else you will end up in fiery hell torment forever, um, burning forever. And I've even heard of some people going so far as to cut off certain parts of their body. Um, there was, I can't remember who it was. I, I Origin. Get... Origin. Okay. What did he Same do? Origin, yeah. He cut off a specific part of his body there you go. in order to That's... try to avoid a particular sin. We won't get too graphic here, but everyone can fill yeah. in the details there. <laughs> yes. And so he had he dealt with some issues that all men deal with. And he thought that in order to avoid hell, he needed to, which is what Jesus taught. So he literally cut 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 himself. Just leave it at that. Uh, but, you know, I've heard of people plucking out their eyes or, or um, you know, things like that. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what we need to do? What's what's Jesus talking about here? Uh, well, most of the time I've heard people teach. There, there are a few, like we've talked about examples where people take it literally. Most of the time I've heard this passage taught, it's been Jesus being hyperbolic to make a point. Some of what you're saying, yep. not necessarily cut your hand off, but take drastic measures right. in order to avoid eternal hell. Yep. Um, make sure you're living righteously so that you avoid eternal hell. Yep. Um, he doesn't say he doesn't mean literally cut your hand off, but maybe get rid of your TV or mm-hmm. you know whatever it is. Certain friends um, or places you go, or even if you have yes. to quit a job, things like that. Okay, mm-hmm. that, that might be leading you into sin or something. Ironically, I take it a little more literally than them, hmm. um, but I, I don't think Jesus is teaching um, self mutilation, but. He's, be, he's not being hyperbolic. He's being hypothetical. If, hypothetically, your eye were able to cause you to sin, or if your hand were able to cause you to sin, it would be better for you to be without it. Hmm. Now, based on the rest of Jesus' teaching, we know that it's not your eye that's the problem. It's not your hand that's the problem. It's your heart that's the problem. <laughs> you know, and so— it's not that he wants you to cut off your hand. It's it's the, the, the way I phrase it in my commentary is um, here. Let me just uh, let me just I'll just read it. I've got it pulled up here. Um, it's as if someone objected G- to Jesus's teaching by saying, "Teacher, that's really too much. I can't control my eyes. My hands often work before my thoughts can even react." Mm. And that happens Jesus too, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we that happens to so, us all the time. Okay, good. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. And so if someone said, I can't possibly have the kind of self-control you're telling me, Jesus points out the absurdity of the objection by the severity of his response. Well, then cut them off, he says. Now, though self-amputation obviously would not really be of any value in changing the sinfulness of one's heart, hypothetically speaking, that goes into what we were saying before. Hmm. Um, yeah. The the your Your eye is committing lust because your heart is in the wrong spot. Your hand is committing violence because your heart is in the wrong spot. Um, it would be better to be a handless man living righteously, hmm. but you can cut off both your hands and still have the, the the hatred in your heart. You can cut out both eyes and still have the lust in your heart yep. um, that Jesus is addressing. the The point is the heart, and he it's the uh, the hypothetical is saying, yes, it would be better to be a man without hands than to be a man who's who's living without self-control and his his violent behavior, for example. Um, but cutting off your hands isn't going to do anything. 
it's kind of he's pointing out that 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 point by saying, well, then cut him off. Like, well, that wouldn't really help, would it? Your hands, you're still going to have the violent tendency. You're still going to have the lustful heart. You're still going to have the anger against your brother or, you know, the lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it is, um, unless you have the heart condition addressed. And that's what Jesus is really getting at. Um, he wants righteousness that goes all the way down into your internal person. Um, not just, well, if I don't cut my hands off, I'll lose any fight I get into. So that way I can avoid murder. <laughs> well, if I cut both my eyes out, I know I'm not going to commit adultery, so I'll just cut both my eyes out. Like, no, that's not the <laughs> – Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, fine, go ahead and cut them out. See how that works. Yeah, there's you know, still that hard he, he's, issue. He's pointing out to the audience, like, wait a minute, if I cut my eyes out, it still wouldn't work. I'd still be in the same sinful condition. I counseled a man once who struggled with lust, <clears throat> as you know, a lot of us do. And so his approach was to systematically start – following Jesus' words here, and try to cut things out of his life that he thought was leading him into sin. So first thing he did is the people he was hanging out with at work were, he thought were bad influences, so he stopped hanging out with them, but that didn't work. So ultimately, eventually, he quit his job to stay at home, so to completely avoid any influences, because he said on the way to work sometimes, he saw billboards with women on them. You know, that's what advertisers do. And, you know, they're not naked or anything, but uh, he just saw that they were beautiful, and that brought lust into his heart. And so then he's sitting at home, and he said, but then I was tempted to watch TV, so he got rid of his TV. And then he got rid of the the um, radio because some of the songs talked about love and, and women and things like that. And then uh, he refused. He was married. He refused to go run errands for his wife because he couldn't go to the grocery store because of the magazines. Basically, when he finally came to me, the only thing he could do was sit on his couch at home. <laughs> and I remember him sitting there just at the end of himself because he said, and none of it works. I, I yep. still have lustful thoughts and, and, and tendencies and desires. And what am I going to do, Pastor? So, um, and, you know, he was reading this verse afraid that because of this, he was going to go to hell. And oh. I think that's why Jesus's words are so extreme, because, <clears throat> look, it's not too much to ask me to get rid of my TV. I think if I get rid of my TV and I'll be perfectly righteous, I'll get rid of my TV. Right. You say, well, what about your eyes? Yeah. Go ahead. Get rid of your eyes. Yeah. See had, if that's going to work. He hadn't done that yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he takes it as extreme as he can to show yeah. that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just keep getting rid of things thinking that your heart condition is going to change. It's mm -hmm. not those things. It's in here. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm wanting to address. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did address by um, his uh, work on the cross and his giving of the Holy Spirit, that we can we can have the same righteousness that he has by living the through his life that he's given us. That's 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 the message he's wanting to get to um, by by using the most extreme example of cutting something off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's eventually what ended up happening with the man I was talking to and talking with him. It became pretty obvious to me. He had brought up been brought up very legalistic. And it was all about works and behavior and obedience. And he'd never heard the offer of Jesus that if you believe in him, you receive eternal life. It's that simple. And when that yep. happens, you receive the Holy Spirit that you were just talking about, who then comes in and starts molding you and shaping you. And yeah, it's a process. It takes a while. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, he had never heard that before. So, um, and, and that's probably sort of what Jesus is getting at here, right? Just to some degree. Uh, oh, just, absolutely. Just going with the extreme example here about, look, even if you go to the most extreme example, it's not going to work. You're still going to end up, uh, you know, maimed out in this garbage pit outside of uh, outside of Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, didn't I read somewhere? Maybe this was you, maybe not. That lepers went there as well. Sometimes when lepers were cast out of Jerusalem, they would live in or around Gehenna. Um, I have heard that, but I, I haven't read that. It's okay. not. It's not in my commentary. Um, so I didn't throw that in there. I had heard that, but um, 
that there might be some connection between what he's saying about being maimed. Um, but yeah, I was wondering that. I'm, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but. I've heard that some people <clears throat> back at that time when they thought they had leprosy on, say, a hand or a foot or something, they might cut it off in an attempt to avoid the spreading of the leprosy. Because if they didn't, then they knew it would spread and they would end up out in Gehenna, out in that valley. But I need to find, I can't remember where I read that. Um, but, you know, if that's true, then maybe Jesus is referring to that sort of an idea here as well. Um, uh, but again, to his disciples, to tell them it's about your heart condition. And how does that change through the indwelling Holy Spirit, which comes to all believers, right? And I think um, getting back to Paul in the in the epistles, I think he's saying the same thing Jesus is saying when he's talking about the the principle of law versus the principle of grace. Yes. Um, when we like people in this in the free grace movement sometimes are guilty of talking only of grace in terms of that initial receiving of eternal life. Now that's true. That is ex you know exclusively by grace. But so is everything else. Right. You know, grace just means God's giving it. You know, law says do, grace says done. You know, and so it's not that he's saying do as many things as you can, get rid of your TV, get rid of your friends, get rid of your job, get rid of your car, get rid of the trip to work from the billboards, and then finally you'll be righteous and I'll accept you. It's like, no, God has given you everything when he gave you his son. You know, the that that's grace. <laughs> you know, the the gift of God that comes to you and that you receive and that you just walk in, that's how you live the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. Mm -hmm. That's how you avoid the sin that Jesus is talking about. Grace, not on the principle of law, <clears throat> which, you, you know, your, your, your poor friend was trying to be as legally right as he could be by getting rid of all these things. It's, it's you're just, you're abiding in the wrong principle. Yep. Like, and that's why Jesus takes that law principle to his absolute absurd extreme. Go ahead and cut your hands off and cut out your eyes and see if you live righteously. Wonderful. Good. It's got to be something else. And, and he, he gets into that later on the sermon. He's like, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. I love it. All right, let's move on to the third and final text then. And I think it sort of relates to all of this. And uh, it sort of also brings us around full circle, I think, to the the focus and purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. And the text yeah. is uh, another half of a verse this time. Uh, <laughs> uh, enter through the narrow gate. So I really liked your description of this, your explanation of this in the text, uh, not only how it's widely misunderstood in Christian circles today, but then sort of how you bring it around and explain what Jesus is talking about here. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's again, often seems like many people when they teach this, they say, see, uh, Jesus is saying that the way to heaven is narrow. Um, and, uh, not many find it. You need to try hard to get through the gate. And um, anyway, just just explain it, sort of summarize how this is taught, how it's misunderstood, and what Jesus is talking about. Um, sure. There's um, so there's there's two ways of looking at the gate and the way. Um, one is to see the gate first, and then the, and then you follow the way because that that's why he says enter by the narrow the gate the the. The gate is narrow and the way is constricted. Mm -hmm. And so some people say you first walk through the gate, then you walk through the, the way. Um, the other way is to see it as the gate leading, the way leading up to the gate, which I think makes more sense. That's the way that I take it. Um, because, you know, he says enter by the narrow gate, meaning that there's a city and there, there's a gate. And so you, you, you're going through the path to the gate. And he starts with the gate because that's the goal. And he says, and the, the narrow way leads up to it. Um, 
And so depending on the way that you look at that, it can be one of uh, a couple of things. The way I've normally been taught it in my Christian life is that you enter the gate, um, and that gate is salvation, being born again, and your life is going to be real hard once you do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. the way is the way is narrow. Um, the other way to look at it is that you're, you're walking through the narrow way to get to the gate, and in that case, maybe the gate is final salvation, like going to heaven when you die. And so you better walk the narrow way because if you fall off that way, you're not going to get to that final gate. You're not going to finally be saved. Hmm. Um, based on the context of what Jesus has been teaching from the beginning, he's telling his disciples, he's telling people who already believe in him. What is the kingdom requirements for reward in the kingdom age? I take the gate to be kingdom. And I mean, there's a, um, if you want to look in my commentary, there's a parallel passage with the entering by the narrow door. Um, and there he explicitly says it's uh, talking about entering the kingdom. <clears throat> but anyway, the, um, the constricted way is the Christian life of obedience to Jesus's teachings. The gate is is the kingdom reward that's at the end. You can't enter the way or the gate until you're already born again. The question is not how to be born again. He's talking to people who already have been born again. And what I take to be the broad way versus the constricted way is the um, way you're handling his teaching. Because like I said, when you take it to be to be how to receive eternal life, because the, the, the standard is so high, people tend to try to lower the bar. Jesus doesn't really mean you have to love your enemies. I mean, come on, we all know we hate our enemies. <laughs> you know, Jesus isn't really saying, um, "Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow cares for itself." Like, no, he really is saying that. <laughs> you know, the narrow way is the right understanding. I think he's talking the context, the understanding of what he's saying. The narrow way is the right way. A lot of people will try to broaden it, but the narrow way is the right way. It's the way that leads to the reward of the kingdom that I'm talking about. Um, but. In no sense is he is he threatening. If you when you step off the path, you're in danger of hellfire. That's not that's not the point of what he's saying. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, it makes a whole lot more sense of the passage, and also just sort of it helps. Jesus is gearing up here or winding down. I guess the Sermon on the Mount. He's heading towards a conclusion here, and so uh, that also sort of helps tie everything together for the overall theme of this Sermon on the Mount, right? Absolutely right, and I, I, just within the context, he's he he's given these instructions that are difficult, um, and then he says, "Enter by the narrow gate because the way is narrow." It makes sense that it's talking about the the interpretation of his of his teaching, mm-hmm. and come in full circle with the theirs is the kingdom. Who 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 gets to reign with you in that kingdom, Jesus? You've you've said the kingdom's at hand. You're telling us to to prepare ourselves. Who what 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 people get to be there with you? The meek will inherit the earth. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's a constricted way to get to that narrow gate. I think, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a, in, in my view, it's a, it's a much better conclusion way, of, way of wrapping up the sermon compared to it being a random evangelistic message about how hard it is to get eternal life in a, in the, in the middle of a teaching about the kingdom and future reward. Now I can hear someone objecting saying, oh, but Kent, you're talking about context all the time. Well, look down in verse 14, Matthew 7, 14. It says, for the gate is narrow, the way is constricted that leads to life. And those are few who find it. So Kent, uh, this is talking about receiving eternal life. I mean, we read it right there in verse 14, leading to life. So uh, what's your response to that sort of question or objection? That this Um, is about eternal life rather than the kingdom of God. 
Well, there are a number of times that the word life or even eternal life are used in the New Testament. And I actually got a uh, some help from a commentary, or I think it, it wasn't a commentary, it was just a, a book that uh, Zane Hodges had written. Um, and he points out that every time eternal life is used as a present possession, something that you currently have, um, like, like Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he who believes has eternal life. Um, it's always presented just that way, as a gift, free, no charge, just believe it and receive it. However, every time it's used to refer to something in the future, um, what uh, the, the rich young ruler, what must I do to obtain eternal life or to inherit eternal life? Um, Jesus always applies works to it. And in this case, the, the, uh, um, the life is referenced as something in the future. And again, you get there by trekking up the constricted way. Um, and so the, and, and there's, there's a few other reasons why I, I take it this way. And uh, if you want to get the, the full explanation, it's there in the, the, I think it's the second to last chapter of my book. Um, in, in this passage too, that word life um, is, is referencing the way that the, uh, the Jews would have understood Moses talking about the reward for obedience to the law, for example. He says that you might live. Sometimes he says live long in the land, but sometimes he just says so that you'll live. Um, does that mean that you'll go to heaven when you die? That's not what he means. It means that, and there was, de there was debate among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees meant live, meaning be resurrected and live in the kingdom when the Messiah reigns. Um, the Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection. They thought it would just meant maybe you're, in your natural life you'll live or your progeny will be able to be there or whatever. Um, but I think Jesus and we ought to uh, take it to mean, no, after the resurrection, you get to live, meaning be there present in the kingdom. Um, and if you want a further detailed explanation of that, uh, I go into it in my book. But I take it to mean, in that case, it's one of those reward aspects of uh, eternal life, not the present possession of eternal life. Yeah, good. Fantastic. Well, lots to chew on. I think we did pretty good. We only, it's not even an hour yet. <laughs> and we discover or discuss three of the more difficult texts. Well, actually, there's lots of difficult texts in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't there? Lots of um, yeah, there are a lot of difficult texts if you're looking at it as a evangelistic tool, right? And trying to square it with Jesus's teaching in the Gospel of John of just believe and be saved, or Paul's teaching justification by faith, or any of the other passages. It's tough to square those when you understand Jesus to be offering eternal life to those who he's teaching. Um, but I think once you kind of put it in, the, in in his proper context, the pieces start to fall together and it starts to be a, a more of a cohesive whole. But especially with our, with our English translations, um, you know, I don't want to hate on any translation. I think most of the time you pick up your English Bible, you're going to be getting a pretty good translation of that verse. But translation committees are human the same way. We are. You can't just take it to the bank. Uh, and so there are some translational issues, like like what you talked about, the translation of the word Hades, Tartarus, Gehenna, and Lake of Fire, all is that one four-letter word, hell. It's a little it, – it adds to the confusion rather than clarifies, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. But – and so there, there is some, some difficulty. But I do think that through the proper exegesis, like what you do on your podcast every week, um, kind of going through the, the text, looking at the context, looking at – the original language, looking at the, the the basic tenor of what the Lord's character is, um, it can start to fall together and, and, and make sense as a whole when you when you take it that way. 
And especially, as you said, this one main idea that the, King, uh, that the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to receive eternal life. It's a message Jesus is teaching to his disciples about how to be a good disciple, about how to be one of his followers so they can experience and enter the kingdom of heaven. That That's one right. distinction right there, this is discipleship truth instead of you know, how to receive eternal life truth, that one idea, I think, clarifies... I mean, it really, really helps understand the entire Sermon on the Mount. Well, and, and the Gospel of Matthew and a lot, the entire Bible as a whole, pretty much, right? Oh, yeah, especially the, the, the teachings of Jesus, yeah. yeah. It's like, is the Jesus in, in the Gospel of John and the Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew arguing with each other? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, good. So listen, I'm sure that lots of the listeners would like to get a copy of this commentary for themselves and maybe connect with you. Tell them how they can do that. Um, I've got, you can get the electronic copy at seekersofchrist.org for free. We've got it there. You can download the PDF or uh, look through the HTML. If you are, are like me and you prefer to have a hand copy that you can write in, it's available at amazon.com. It's called Theirs is the Kingdom, uh, an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount by Kent Young. Um, you can go to Amazon and uh, you'll, fi- you'll find it there. Um, Connecting with what, you on what Facebook else? or Twitter, maybe? Can people do that? Yeah, you can look me up. Uh, I, I'm not on. No, I'm, I'm on occasionally. <laughs> um, okay. I, on uh, my my Twitter handle, I think it's just Kent underscore E underscore Young. Um, I don't think there's a period after the E. I don't know if they'll let you do that. But uh, yeah, you can you can find me on 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 Twitter. Um, Seekersofchrist.org is probably the best way, though. If they want Seekersofchrist.org is where you know anything that I write that I've kind of put a lot of effort in. That's a that's a kind of a spiritual minded thing. I'm going to end up putting there probably. Fantastic, excellent, and yes, the 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 entire commentary. Get this is available for free download as a PDF, or you can access individual pages and sections of it through various pages on the website. Right. Correct. Okay, but if you want a paperback copy, I'm going to get a, a, a copy for myself. I already have the PDF, but I'm one of those who love paperback versions so I can scribble in it and note, and uh, underline and things like that. So I'm going to get a copy, and those are available on Amazon, correct? Correct. Okay, I will include links to all of those in the show notes for this podcast episode. And uh, Kent, I really appreciate you taking the time coming on here, help us clarify a couple verses out of the Sermon on the Mount, and really giving us this sort of framework for understanding not just the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but really a sort of a framework for understanding all of Scripture as well. It's really, really helpful. Thank you very, very much. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you so much for you, do. I, uh, I can't uh, tell you how much my, my bike rides around the neighborhood have improved when I found your podcast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always come back, I'm like, oh, hey, man, I just had a nice Bible lesson on my bike ride. So thanks for all you do, and thank you for having me today. Good. Thank you very much, too. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye.